This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is, well, a little bit happier this week because we heard from Uncle Warren. At least, I'm happier. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, Dr. Anirban Mahati. How are you, Doc? Good day, Captain. I am, I'm actually very good. Really? But it's not be- yeah, I'm just good, but it's not, it's not because of Uncle Warren, but I'm good still. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the Uncle Warren we're talking about is Warren Buffett, who held their, I was going to say usual yearly annual meeting, but it wasn't usual at all because it was all done via technology this time. So we'll talk a little bit about that and some of the key ups and downs, some of the outtakes from that one. We will talk again about Corona, not because we want to, but because we need to. We will just kind of, you know, check in on where we're at and what's coming next. We'll talk about more, what do we say, capital decisions, both capital raisings and dividend cuts this week. We'll talk about how coronavirus is actually changing some businesses in some very, very fundamental ways. We'll talk about Qantas playing a little bit of hardball with prices and what the ACCC is going to do about it. And, of course, mate, because what is Motley Fool money without it? We will dip into the Motley Fool mailbag. What do you reckon? I reckon this is a solid plan. Let's go and get on with it. Now, mate, before we do, I want to tell our listeners about your service, Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Now, for those who don't know, Doc runs Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities looking for some of the companies on the ASX that have a little bit more risk, a little bit more uncertainty, but potentially a whole lot more return. That means it's going to be a bit more volatile, a bit more bumpy, but if, and I think when, he gets it right, there are some big, big returns on offer. Now, the good people at uh, in the finance department at The Motley Fool have given us a pretty good price. So if you want to join Doc at EO, Doc and Kevin Ganyu, who works with him, to get his best ideas, his newest recommendations, his best buyers now, I suggest you very quickly go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That gives you, as I said, a special price to join. Frankly, it's bloody cheap, cheaper than I think it should be, much cheaper than Doc thinks it should be. But either way, luckily for you, loyal listener, we don't get to set the prices, so well, we love you. We also want to make a bit of money for the business, but other people have decided that, well, we want, to, we want to sell it reasonably inexpensively to give most people, as many people as possible, the chance to get Doc's goodness. And frankly, I can't really disagree with that. So go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and sign up. Go on. We'll wait. Quick. <laughs> Done? All right, good. We're back. Okay, Doc, let's, let's get on with it. Do you like a bit of radio theatre? I'm all about the right. I, 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 I uh, love that theater. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a simple man. I need simple things to be entertained. That was, that was pretty cool. <laughs> and right. I know you made it on the spot, so I give you credit for it. <laughs> very, mate, you, you, are only, you are always very kind, and uh, that's good for me, because otherwise you won't, I'd be in some trouble. Mate, let's talk about, we don't really want to, let's talk about macro. And when we say macro these days, we really mean coronavirus. Um, I guess this week, it feels to me, we're recording this Thursday morning as we do these days. And again, I know I say it every week, just for any new listeners or listeners who've forgotten, I don't know what's happening on Friday. By the time you listen to this, everything could have gone very, very well, very badly. But thus far, mate, the, the, the week has been broadly positive. The mood of investors, the mood of the public, the mood of politicians in Australia, at least, is feeling pretty positive, optimistic. Uh, I won't say the worst is necessarily behind us, but it's feeling pretty good, right? Yeah, I think it's it's looking good. Um, there's some pathway to some form of uh, uh, what would I say, uh, a new normal, um, you know, and then that that new normal is going to be better than the new normal we had over the past several weeks. So that that's right. all, all all good. Um, you know, the, the yeah, I, I think overall there's reasons to feel optimistic. You know, because um, we have had, um, you know, a good regime of a shutdown, which has, you know, sort of controlled the virus and then allowed our health system to sort of, um, you know, bump up resources, you know, their training, their, um, um, you know, their protection gear. So the health system is ready sort of if, if there is a spike, they're able to um, to deal with it. We are better placed, and and in many ways, what I, what I think is the most important thing is what has happened is people have become trained uh, to to deal with this, right? So you know, people are washing their hands more frequently. It's, it's the simple things that matter a lot, right? Washing your hands more frequently, uh, you know, using 
uh, hand sanitizer to sanitize the hands, you know, making sure that, you know, well, even if you're walking around, you are uh, and going about, you know, your business, you're maintaining the distance and uh, you just, just doing the, the right things. And I think, I think that, you know, that sort of is a training, implied training, a human brain. And uh, that I think sets us up, uh, I believe for, uh, you know, phased sort of opening. Um, I'm almost like certain that the numbers of cases that we see and, you know, incidences of coronavirus are going to go, are going to increase again when that happens. But and that's largely because, you know, I mean, there must be some cases, there must be some instances of virus lingering around, right? And, um, you know, as, as I was telling the team that irrespective of whatever we think about testing, I mean, the testing, uh, the number of cases of coronavirus should be missed by any of these tests is about 30%. If that's the case, then there are got to be cases of virus still that ex- that exists in the system or in, in the population. Right. Um, and then when, you know, the reason we don't have a rapid outburst of virus right now is that we were quick and efficient to close and, and go into quarantine. Well, what ha- that has done for us is given us this opportunity to A, train people's mind, change people's behavior, um, as as the, as the national cabinet has said, right, they've got revised guidelines for what the workplace will look like. All of those things are actually steps that help. Um, you know, that just basically makes us better prepared for uh, for everything. So, I mean, I wouldn't want anyone to think that coronavirus is gone or will be gone. I don't want, you know, personally, I don't think it's going to be gone. I, I think this idea of elimination um it can get eliminated, but not because we did it. It can get eliminated just like the SARS virus uh, of the past got eliminated. People still don't know how it got eliminated. That's my view. <laughs> so it can get eliminated, but I wouldn't count on it being eliminated because of us. I would count on it being eliminated because it might get mutated away. Uh, that's that's my uh, understanding. But I feel very optimistic right now because um, I feel like there's a pathway for, you know, the restaurants being open and my, my, my favorite cafe being open so that I can potentially go and have a breakfast there and say, you know, restaurants being open, maybe at a, you know, potentially significantly lower, um, you know, throughput in, you know, they won't be packed. Maybe they'll have less number of people, but that's better than having no people. So I think, see, I I think the threshold right now is such that, you know, from going from zero to something is going to feel great, right? Because, um, (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, that's, that's human psychology, right? And then, and then I think I'm, I'm, you know, talking about, you know, again, without going into uh, politics, but talking about policy, the fact that we've had things like job seeker and job keeper, right? And this is pretty significant amount of money that has been pushed into the economy. So, and this is, you know, varying all the governments of the world, at least the Western governments and developed, you know, OECD countries, for example, um, they've all pushed so much money into the system. They've all pushed, you know, the, 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 you know, the reserve banks, whether it's the RBA or the Federal Reserve in the U.S., they've all been proactive in terms of making sure that the credit systems don't freeze. I think the, the coordinated policy action overall has been fantastic. And I think mm, that right. helps because there's all this money that is there that people, you know, like, I mean, if people have got money and, you know, I'm not saying that it's a full replacement, but you also got to think that if you, if, if somebody's on JobKeeper and received $3,000, that $3,000 after, if, you know, after paying for your most essentials, there's no additional way to have spent that, right? Because uh-huh. uh, a lot of the stuff that people do and, you know, we do in our daily lives and that we love doing, well, you just couldn't do it. So, uh, I, I would I would hope that there's some pent up demand. So you know, normally I'm um, I try to be cautious, but on this particular instance, I feel like there's there's that thing about a little bit of a pent up demand, a little bit of better than what we currently have, and a better understanding of population overall. That you know, hey, we did this, we did well, and now if we stick at it, um, you know, doing the right things, then we're going to be good. I think all of those are as, as, as a combination for a, for a country, I think they're fantastic. So, um, so I think I feel good about it. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed, mate. You haven't heard this yet because I literally recorded it yesterday afternoon, but listeners, if you haven't yet gone back and listened to the Warren Hogan interview episode, it should be up by the time you listen to this. Uh, and Warren who is the ex chief economist of the ANZ bank and now a UTS professor um, goes into a whole lot of detail about what he's expecting from the economy. So, uh, Doc, when you have a chance, I know you'll have a good listen to that one. I know our listeners will do the same. Uh, fascinating, fascinating insights and opinion into what he's expecting from the economy. Um, he's expecting, Doc, a, a W-shaped recovery. So he's expecting some sort of bump in the short term when that pent-up demand is released 
he's concerned a little bit that then the medium term, you know, kind of business failures slash uh, job losses that kind of happen just over time naturally, maybe he's not saying, not just a, a jump and then a, like a double dip recession, just that whatever kind of short term pop might be short term and we kind of have a longer period to get ourselves out of this trouble than perhaps we started with. So that's worth listening to. Listeners, if you have already, hopefully you've enjoyed and love that. If you haven't, um, I heartily recommend it. Mate, worth also just saying from a corona perspective that we're, we're keeping a very close eye. And this is, this is to your point about confidence, which is kind of wrapping up, if I can, in one word, what you were just saying about pent-up demand and people getting back out there, the changes to restrictions around movement, around gathering, as you say. Um, the New South Wales Premier encouraging shops to reopen, as is the PM. To some degree, that will give us a sense of how we get out of this. And as you've rightly pointed out, I think the, we moved from the stage of kind of being fearful of corona and, and kind of, I won't say overreacting, but reacting really definitively and, you know, kind of circuit break kind of way, that lockdown. So now living with it, as you, as you kind of rightly point out, hopefully that means we can get back to business as quickly as possible. Beautiful summary. I love it. Uh, you know, I'm actually looking forward to listening to what Warren Hogan had to say. Um, interesting point about that W that you're talking about. Yeah, I uh, I was I was more optimistic. I tried to convince him to be optimistic. I tried to give talk him into a V shaped recession, mate, but he wouldn't. He uh, he thinks, and probably with, with I said, look, am I being polyandry? He said, yeah, probably. So so <laughs> maybe he's the realist, uh, given my optimism. But in any case, really really worth listening to. Mate, let's move on because you've been uh, pretty pretty funny and pretty consistent in our group chats uh, inside the office about these capital raisings we're seeing a lot of. Um, Another day, another capital raising seems to be the general vibe. I do, it's what I think is fascinating, mate, is we probably a couple of weeks ago when, when Virgin was in trouble, which now has gone to administration, when Webjet and Flights are also raising capital, there was a real question about is there enough capital out there? Is there enough appetite out there to actually fund these capital raisings? I don't know if it's the same kind of vibe in investor land as in consumer land, which is we're kind of just getting on with realising this is the new normal or not, but there have been billions of dollars raised um, in the last three, four weeks, it does seem literally every you know every time I open the newspaper or click on click on the, the AFR or the Australian or the, the SMH's homepage, there's another business story about another company raising capital. Um, it, it's I don't I don't I don't. It seems like there's a reasonably endless supply of money. I mean, for all of the for all of the the, the unduly or the um, unavoidable bad news is it dilutes shareholders irregardless, irregardless, irrespective. Irregardless, mm -hmm. not a word. Um, it dilutes shareholders anyway, but at least if you're looking for a silver lining, or at least you know the avoidance, excuse me, of, of some terrible outcome, the money does seem there. The investor appetite does seem to be there to make sure these companies aren't unduly going to the wall. Yeah, that's a that's a good uh, you know, like so, so. The it's a little bit about the psychology of or how the money is. Um, is moving around, right? I mean, if you think about big, so I'm going to use the example of, you know, think about big pension funds, right? Big pension funds have a ton of money that basically sits around in cash or cash equivalent type of assets, right? Um, they look around and now they're saying, well, okay, I can get some value somewhere. So they're putting that money in. So, I mean, there's, there's money, you know, money moves from one asset to another asset in that sense, right? So that, that, that's happening. There's also all this money that's being pushed yeah. in, uh, pumped into the system by uh, the various um, central banks. So there's that money. Um, they're all finding their way in one form or other into, you know, uh, into various asset classes and equities are getting their fair share. Um, so I think what, what I think though is, you know, it's, it's true that a large majority of investors, mm -hmm. pension funds, um, uh, you know, super funds, they actually del deliver at best at par returns and most of the time subpar returns, right? And uh, mm. and that's because, you know, they make poor investment decisions. They also make um, uh, decisions that are... Uh, you know, like poor, 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 poor choices, poor capital allocation, and so on. So, I mean, I feel like a lot of that. It's great that companies have access to money, which is which is. A, I, I think it's a better situation than they're not having access to money because there's a whole lot of jobs and stuff that's going to do, would have been really hurt. But at the same time, I don't feel very strongly 
I feel a lot of the investments that are going on right now are basically going to be money-losing investments. Uh, now, it depends on how you want to define money-losing, right? I mean, if you think that, you know, the overall market is going to do poorly, then, you know, relative to that, maybe some of these are going to do better. But um, right. in terms of, like, you know, if you think of historical benchmarks, and I think a lot of these things are going to just disappoint. So that's what I feel, that there's a lot of money slushing around to, you know, what I would say is, um, you know, distressed assets or semi-distressed assets or, you know, there are exceptions to a rule, like, you know, CSL, for example, this morning raising money. So CSL, so there are some companies which are raising money at near all-time highs and therefore they're not going to be diluting enough and they're raising money from a position of strength. But there are a lot of, a lot of companies that are raising money because they kind of have to <laughs> and they're not really raising from a position of strength. So um, yeah. it's good that there is money, but I think, you know, it, it also speaks to what one may expect uh, in terms of future returns, right? And the dividend cuts, as you mentioned, is just part of that. Like, I mean, dividend cuts basically mean that you don't have the cash flow. You don't have right. the cash earnings to actually pay the dividends, right? And in the past, you have to, you have, you have had um, unsustainable practices of you know borrowing money to pay the dividend, or you know, exp- or, or in, in in many cases, actually doing you know capital placements to actually pay your dividend because you just think that you know I could cover it next year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, in my view, a lot of this is just a, a reflection of you know poor capital allocation, right? from the people who are distributing the capital to the people in the boardrooms who are making these decisions. Um, when I say a lot, I mean actually a lot, but there, of course there are rule, exceptions to the rule that are some who are going to do very well. Uh, but I don't, you know, I feel that a lot of it is just poor capital allocation. But anyway, that's what I think. Very good. You are never, never shy on coming forward, mate. So we had this week national storage, the self-storage REIT, raising $300 million. Dicker Data is out this morning, again, Thursday morning, raising capital. James Hardy during the week cut its dividend. Um, outlook on dividends, mate, to me feels pretty ordinary. It seems that there's two, two well, there's probably multiple versions of this, but two kind of key things going on. The first is companies simply can't afford to pay dividends outright. Then there's those who maybe can, maybe can't, but feel like, hey, if we've got so much cover now, if the big banks are cutting dividends or deferring them, then the rest of us might as well, because you know where's where's the pressure, right? When when NAB, CBA, Westpac, ANZ are saying no dividends, James Hardy or someone else just gets to say, well, they're not doing it. You can't expect me to do it. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. In the, almost kind of a, the the natural kind of flow on from your criticism in the, of the past behaviour is, I'm hopeful, and maybe this is maybe this is Pollyanna again, but I'm hopeful that this gives a a circuit breaker for companies to almost reset those dividend policies, right? To make sure that when they get back to putting dividends up again or reinstating those dividends, they almost get complete cover to say, we don't have to continue it. We don't have to make it a little bit more than last year, at least the same as last year, because we've kind of been through that, right? This this cover says, well, when we start again, we can potentially start from levels that are far more uh, conservative, reasonable, choose your choose your word, um, than, than they might have otherwise been. I think that, you know, it's, a, it's worth stating for dividend seeking investors, yes, they want high yields, but the high yields can potentially come at the risk of the company itself, right? And the difference between a, a three and a half and a five and a half percent yield is a lot in dollars per year. But it may, it may also be the difference between either companies being put at risk and or meaningfully dilutive capital raising at some future point, right? So there is some false economy in those high yields in some cases. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think that that's the, that's the, I think the silver lining here that companies can actually set their payout ratios to sustainable levels. And, and and then you know maybe reinvest some some of that money, uh, retained earnings for for you know growth right and that the the overall combination of say three percent yield with uh, you know or two and a half percent yield with growth is substantially better than like you know six percent yield with no actually growth capital being invested which basically puts your company at risk so if there is of course the, the question there is if there is no opportunity for growth then well then you know that's a different a uh, different question, but, you know, um, yeah, I think that that's, that's the silver lining here, definitely. All right, mate, so let's get to the best part of this week, the most exciting part, your favourite part, my favourite part, the highlight of our investing years. Uh, I can't add any more superlatives without laughing, so I'll stop there because uh, you're smirking the other side of the camera that our listeners can't see, and... I will say, as always, uh, over the last few weeks, we're recording this via Zoom, so please forgive us the audio being less ideal than it has been in the past and maybe even the occasional glitch. Uh, we are doing our, our bit to social distance as well. Um, mate, it was, speaking of social distancing, speaking of being on video, 
Warren Buffett, the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, the world's ex-richest man, was he top three or four normally, so I haven't checked it recently, but let's assume he's somewhere in that range. Um, the greatest investor of all time, in my view, uh, you may or may not agree or disagree. Uh, in any case, he is the guy that we all, or a lot of us listen to every year. The first Sunday in May, generally speaking, is when he sits down normally with 40,000 fanatical shareholders in a sports stadium in the US Midwest in Omaha, Nebraska. Social distancing meant that that meeting was canceled this year. The good news, of course, is that Buffett still did a on-video version of this, took questions from uh, CNBC's Becky Quick, who gathered them from shareholders and asked some of her own. So there was some sense of getting it, getting to hear from Buffett again. Uh, I'm gonna ask you for a couple of your favorites, mate, but I'm gonna start with my favorite non-investing moment of the of the meeting, which was, look, I don't, I've always been a big Bill Murray fan, right? The Caddyshack Groundhog Day, uh, Lost in Translation, fantastic movie. Bill Murray, wonderful, wonderful actor. A bit quirky, a bit kind of different, but but a really cool kind of guy. He actually sent a question to Warren Buffett via Becky Quick, and she asked it during the meeting. And I think when when Bill Murray is asking Warren Buffett a shareholder question, he's a shareholder as well, by the way. I just thought that was a, that was just a really cool kind of fun moment. Um, so I'll, I'll lead with that. I will ask, though, in all seriousness, although I feel for it to be a bit fun as well, your thoughts, or if you have any, um, I don't think you were probably as keen to watch it as to it as I was. Uh, I drove in the sunrise on Sunday morning. I had it on in the car. Very excited. Uh, your thoughts, mate, on the Berkshire annual meeting, Buffett's comments, and anything that's coming out of that? Yeah, so a couple of things, I think, stood out to me. Um, so I, I only, you know, like read the reporting on CNBC, um, and they had lots of, you know, they had what they call the the highlight clips, <laughs> the seven, eight highlight yeah. clips. So I, I, I saw those. <laughs> uh, the the couple of things that you know, uh, that uh, that I think stood out to me. Number one, I think is Buffett, and I think this is interesting and important. And actually, we've talked about this in the podcast, so we can uh, uh, take some credit for uh, <laughs> being in line. Uh, being in line, uh, I think one of the things that he said is um, he gave the Federal Reserve of the U.S. Um, uh, and its chairman uh, Powell a lot of credit for the sort of the speed with which they reacted. Yeah. Right, so basically preventing a credit freeze in in the in the you know basically if you have a credit freeze in the in the US bond market or somewhere that easily very quickly you know spikes you know spreads uh, almost like coronavirus to uh, to the rest rest of the credit markets right and the the speed with which they reacted there that was very helpful according to buffett so i think that combined with sort of the stimulus push uh, in many ways, what Buffett was saying is that the amount of heavy lifting uh, governments and certain banks have done, that sort of really led the rebound that you saw in the stock market. The stock market basically tries to think ahead. And basically right. what the stock market is basically currently saying is, well, uh, look, this is bad, but we have never seen this kind of un unprecedented level of policy intervention to keep the economy going. And Buffett basically acknowledging that, you know, like he was basically caught off guard by the the, the speed at which, um, you know, things rebounded and he couldn't find any, um, you know, sweet deals to buy. Uh, I guess in a way, trying to say that, you know, you can't really time the market. It's really hard to time the market because you don't know what, what variable changes and when. So I thought that was an interesting comment. I think that's it you know, prescient comment in both levels mm. in terms of just how to act in the market. And, you know, um, and we also felt that even in ourselves, you know, it's, it's just, it's really hard to act in, you know, um, when the market is going down and everything is fearful, right? But yeah. Yeah. you would hope that if there's more time, then you'd be able to do that. But this time nobody had that kind of time to, right, you know, right. you didn't get so an ex fast. Yeah, you didn't get an extended bottom in which you could, you know, think and process and, and do things. So I thought that was, that was interesting. The um, uh, the other thing I think that's interesting in a way he was uh, he talked about this he he talked about capital light businesses and he said and he says there's always you know um, you know never bet against America or something like that or he says so you know always bet um, you know always bet on America and he says yeah, that you know yeah. that's a winning strategy uh, you know, what I think I've said this in the, you know I I think the way the way he phrases it. I find that what it does is it, it phrases it, it almost seems like it's put in a nationalistic sort of way. Whereas yeah, right. I've, 
uh, and in my viewpoint, that I think is actually misses the mark in many ways. I think what he's, I get what he's trying to say, uh, is that you know, well, you know, human spirit always succeeds. Human spirit, you know, irrespective of all these things that we have had, whether it's the oil crisis, various wars, World War One, World War Two, over the long term, the market is, you know, uh, a voting machine and it does really well. And right. and and then he's, you know, so I think there's a, there's a bit of a national tone to that. I think that national tone probably is not necessary. And and then. The I guess the other thing is that I think when he says you know um, never bet against America I think what he I think what he should really be saying is never bet against capitalism in a way right and the capital the capital of capitalism is uh, the American stock markets right and therefore a lot of lot of the world's companies they need not necessarily be American but they do list or have listings in America. And and that is the world's largest equity market and has the world's largest flow of money and so on and so forth. And therefore, there's a natural benefit that you know accrues to being just large and just having all the people show up there. It's like the largest meeting ground. So I think that's sort of, you know, maybe a little bit more clarity around that. Uh, what I mean. So I think those two things were interesting. He made comments about, you know, capitalized businesses and so on, which I thought was interesting. Um, yeah, so those are sort of my key things. Nice, mate. I'll, I'll have a couple of my thoughts. Um, maybe where to start? So it was fascinating. Look, Buffett not buying anything is, I think, the biggest headline out of this. Not necessarily out of the meeting, but out of the last few months. And you've talked to exactly why that is. They still retain $137-odd billion worth of cash, though. And so at some point, there is there is some reality. I said to you guys during the week, and I think it's, I think it's true, Buffett's penchant now is to buy whole businesses, probably not listed businesses, because of the amount of cash and the size he's got. He actually said, look, if we had a billion dollar opportunity to go and put a billion dollars to work and we doubled our money, we had $2 billion, which when you think about it is, you know, is only just more than 1%. The gain is actually less than 1% of the total cash pile and a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the company's total market cap. And so he's playing with such large numbers. He said, look, we still do it because, you know, we're not going to knock back money. But it, the ability of that to, to move the dial, Buffett can't reasonably go and make billion dollar purchases or billion dollar bets just not got enough bandwidth and no one's got enough bandwidth to make that many individual bets at, at that deep level of investigation. He's looking for whole businesses. And I think to some degree, he wasn't likely, I don't think, to find listed businesses to, to buy outright or to put large, you know, 30, $40 billion amounts that he talked about into those businesses in, in short order. He's really looking for unlisted ones. And I think that probably means that I could still be wrong about this. I'm not making a prediction, but I think he's more likely to be able to do that when either those businesses themselves get in trouble in a couple of months' time rather than now because everyone kind of see through the short term. But if he's looking for a bargain, you know, if I owned a cafe, just because the stock market fell 35%, doesn't mean I'm going to sell my cafe for 35% less. Now, I might have been, you know, dire straits, but if it's a decent ongoing business, just because the capital markets are marking down the, the, the short, you know, temporarily marking down the, the price of these businesses, doesn't mean I'm going to necessarily follow slavishly. And so, Buffett's almost in a different cycle, I think, when it comes to buying private businesses. He's either looking for long-term issues or long-term kind of, you know, um, pain at a, at, a, at a fundamental economic level, at a company level, rather than at a price level. Um, and maybe that comes down the track a bit like Warren Hogan's, um, you know, W shape. The second, the second down of the W may well be the time. Uh, or it may just be simply that it, it doesn't sit on the cycles at all and is just simply waiting for people to want to sell out at decent prices of their businesses. It's almost irrespective of where the economy is at. There's only so much money you can really put to work. And as you've rightly said, some of the best businesses on the planet haven't fallen anywhere near as much as some of the worst businesses. Um, and Buffett traditionally hasn't wanted to buy a bad business. So, you know, he'd rather, I think you said before, he wants to buy a great business at a good price rather than a bad business at a great price. And to some degree, we didn't see that sort of decline in some of the, the best businesses. It was the structurally, you know, challenged businesses that the tier, to your, use your phrase, tier two, tier three businesses that struggled the tier ones didn't really fall anywhere near as much and have recovered pretty quickly, as you as you mentioned. So there's that. I think um, he was also asked about buying his own shares back. And what I thought was interesting there was he didn't he didn't buy extra shares back, even though the Berkshire Hathaway share price had fallen. His argument there was that everything's fallen, so Berkshire shares in and of themselves don't present a screaming bargain relative to other places that he could put the money. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little bit critical there. I think that's true. But equally, he hasn't put the other money anywhere else either. So at some point, you, you do sort of wonder about what that means for how you invest that, that cash. Right? It's one thing to say, I bought X instead of Berkshire because they both fall in 20% or whatever the numbers are. But when you say, well, I bought nothing, but I didn't buy Berkshire because others fell as well, it doesn't really answer the why we didn't buy at least something. So there's still a, a, a question mark there for me in terms of how that money was allocated. And I think we need to probably 
think about that. And I will then talk to other, I've said a couple of newspaper articles in the last couple of days, which I think are horrible misrepresentations of both Buffett's view and Buffett's actions. And I think, I don't know if it's misunderstanding or whether it's deliberately kind of headline seeking, but Buffett, you know, specifically said, look, I'm a big fan of the, the investing over the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. And many people said, well, he's not buying now, therefore he's negative on the economy or he's, he's bearish on the economy or something else. Um, he didn't talk about, you know, I think stocks will do well from here in the next year or two years. Um, I think that's a, a willful misunderstanding of Buffett's position. He's never given short-term forecasts. And so, you know, his point very clearly is, look, I don't know what's going to happen in the share market next year, nor does anybody else. Those people who are looking for him to say, oh, it's all up from here or something, somehow that bullishness means you have to have a short-term forecast. I think, so. I think it's a willful misrepresentation of his words. And I, I say that partly to defend Buffett, though he doesn't need my help, but mostly to kind of talk to our listeners about how they might be reading some of those articles because it's very easy to read an article about Buffett. Oh, he's, you know, he's bearish on the short term. He's been selling airline stocks. He's not bought anything. He's, you know, he won't give a short-term forecast. Therefore, he must be bearish. I think that's a bit of a an answer looking for a problem rather, rather than the answer to the problem that's in front of us. I don't think Buffett said that or inferred that at all. And I do think it's a bit of either willful misrepresentation or a significant misunderstanding of, of Buffett himself and the way he talks about his investments. That's a good summary, mate. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, it's a little, I, I find the cash position that, uh, that Berkshire has and not buying back stocks, even if they're at, at fair value, like that is a bit, I mean, at fair value too, they should, you know, one would think that they would deliver some sort of above market returns, right? Um, yeah. I think that, I personally, my feeling is that I think his problem might be that, that the type of businesses he likes, those are the those you know tend to be capital heavy, right? In you know in the traditional sort of industry and so on, um, with the exception of a few, and a lot of those are uh, those that have not been affected are trading at well above fair value, maybe or in at least in fair value, and then the ones that are trading at a discount uh, are are the ones that are challenged, right? And he might not be interested in buying challenge. But the, right. the thing I think the pro- problem for Buffett is that he is probably ignoring large chunks of the market. He's ignoring large chunks of the technology market, you know, which is sort of probably the largest and the fastest growing piece of the market, right? Mm-hmm. That's where all the the advancements are happening, right? And I think that's, yeah, I, I think that's what you know. If you had to invest his cash or you know be a special, you know, investor um, to you know some evolving new technology, I mean, he, you know, that those are the sort of bets that he's um, he's not making and potentially could have made is, is my, so I, I don't know. I feel like, uh, I feel like his, um, his investing is still caught up in the eighties is what I feel like. <laughs> and he's missed the nineties and the two thousands and the 2010s. Uh, so that's a lot of time to miss, miss out on. And, uh, and maybe, you know, there'll be a new guard at some point and maybe the new guard. I mean, I know the new guard, some of the new guard are investing in sort of these newer, uh, types of businesses. Um, Right, so Berkshire has got uh, interesting investments, but these are all, you know, Todd and Comb, uh, Todd and Ted, sorry, Todd and Ted, Ted, yep. Uh, yep. Todd and Ted or Ted's investment, not his investments. So I, I think, in my my view, in this is, you know, I know this is, you know, I think some of that investing magic has not um, changed with time. I think that's mm. you know my assessment and my you know I have no way to make the assessment, but that's what I feel like. And I uh, I also feel like you know there's there's the distinction that I make between Buffett, a great businessman, and Buffett, the investor. I think that Buffett is a great businessman. He has been a fantastic businessman in terms of acquiring all these different businesses and you know putting different people in charge. And that that's a huge skill. But Buffett, the investor. I mean, if you followed Buffett, the investor, you would be missing out on a lot of stuff. Basically, mm. Buffett, the investor, has not kept up with time. Right, you'd have missed all the technology, you know, the game-changing technology stuff that has happened over the last 15, 20 years, uh, stuff that has delivered fantastic, you know, mind-blowing returns. He's basically missed all of them, uh, yeah. like pretty much everything, right? So uh, I feel like there's that that difference, right? The Buffett the investor and Buffett the businessman, and the Buffett the businessman is fantastic. I think Buffett the investor is probably losing shine, is what I think. But what do I know? I, th- I think it's I think it's an interesting point, man. I think there's there's a bigger conversation for us to have another time. We're, we're going to have got the time now for it, but um, there's a worthwhile conversation because I think Buffett has willingly avoided those areas. He didn't feel like he had a circle of inside comp- circle of competence. And to your point, those have been the sources of his underperformance over the last ten to fifteen years. 
which is exactly the, if you look at the composition of the S&P now compared to what it was 10 years ago, um, even 10 years ago, the biggest companies were still Buffett-esque type companies. You might have invested in necessarily, but it was the GEs, the GMs, the Exxons, the, I don't know, I can't think what would have been, those kind of industrial conglomerates, industrial businesses. And I think the growth of the last decade very much has been, and you're right, it goes back further, but the underperformance is more recent because they've become the biggest companies in the, in the country. And by definition, then take a greater weight of the S&P with them and making it harder to keep up if you're not investing in those companies. And that's certainly been the, pro- the problem. And I think you would absolutely acknowledge that. He would say, look, I don't invest in, in tech because I don't understand it. I think the question for us or the, com- the conversation for us to have another time when we've got a bit more space and time is the, the, the impact of that, right? Like I think he's looking for longer runways, more predictable businesses, Arguably, that's not what the current crop of, you know, trying to predict Amazon's future, Apple's future, Facebook's future, Netflix's future. Buffett would look at that and go, well, I can kind of see a range of outcomes, but I've got no ability to, to kind of decently forecast that future. That's always been his bread and butter, right? Which is looking at a business saying, I think I know where Coke's going to be in 10 years' time or Amex or something else. So that's how I'm going to put money down. The, the inherent uncertainty of the new breed is what's kept Buffett away. And, and frankly, to some degree, his lack of expertise in tech directly, actual tech, the, the physical, well, not the physical, but, you know, the technology itself. Um, there is something about the new, and David Gardner, our Motley Fool co-founder, said words to similar effect. You know, a, a couple hundred years ago, a bloke knew what his son and his grandson were going to be doing for a job. You know, if he was a farmer, his son was going to be a farmer, his grandson was going to be a farmer. Um, yeah, 50 years ago, it was, you know, at BHP, most, most people who started working at BHP had, all, had fathers at BHP. I'm talking just male gender, but we can, we can you know, use the same, although maybe 50 years ago, they put a lot of women in the workforce. Um, the, the, the pace of change, just the, the very pace of change makes Buffett's style of investing really difficult to, to execute in many of those new industries, right, for exactly that reason. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. That's really a good point. And, um, you you know, there's a counterpoint I'll make is that if if everything is predictive, so I think the problem is, I I think, again, this this becomes an episode on its own at some point, but um, (laughs) I I think the problem is this, right? I think when Buffett invested, he was investing without computers. He was investing on paper and pen. I think he was investing when there was less information going around and therefore you could find, I guess, you could find an edge somehow to invest in a Coca-Cola Right. and still do well. I think today you cannot invest in Coca-Cola and do well. I think the type of businesses that he's looking for predictable outcomes, the computer has modeled it and it is trading at that predictable price. In other words, right. everything that you would buy today is predictable. Right. <laughs> you have to buy something with unpredictability to actually have a chance then, right? So I think, I really think, as in, like, I, I listen to a lot of Buffett stuff about business and economics and so on. What I don't listen to is anything of his investing advice. Like I basically just ignore it. The reason I ignore it is that you land up with investments like, you know, Delta Air and whatnot. I mean, who buys airlines? Buffett has said, don't buy airlines. <laughs> like, I mean, I give him credit for selling airlines, but I mean, you know, you've got to be madness to think you're going to make solid money buying airlines and ignoring Amazon. Like, I mean, that is basically... Uh, you know, <laughs> investing 101 mm. on its head while saying, you know, why would you buy this capital heavy thing, which has got all these, you know, huge debt and, you know, dependency and oil and every other thing. Yes, it took coronavirus or something else to cause problems, but something else would have caused problems. I mean, airlines never make money. We know that. Uh, I mean, he has said that, right? Mm. So I think, I think it's that. I think that, you know, computers and technology have, have made that style and that approach difficult to invest because you, you know, like I would say like, you know, quant model today would come up with a fair value of a lot of things. And therefore, how do you really compete against the quant model? Like computers is going to buy and, you know, any arbitrage opportunity that's going to be there uh, is going to disappear, especially at the scale he's looking at. He's looking at big yeah. stuff, yeah. right? I, you can find- Scale, you know, scale is a real issue for him, absolutely. At, 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 at like that size, I think 20 yeah. billion, $30 billion purchase. I mean, I don't think you can find um, find a price edge or a value edge today anymore. Maybe you can find right. it at like, you know, less than a billion dollars because nobody's looking at it and maybe the models are not accurate and things like that. So anyways, that's what I think. Very good. I, uh, I, I, will still, I will still say, and I may still be wrong, that I think over time, if there's enough dislocation, the other thing I think is interesting, mate, to almost that point is the last 10 years have also been earmarked by much more engaged, involved central banks and governments who have been prepared to do more to bail things out. I think Buffett's edge has always been, you're right about the quant models forecasting stuff in business usual times, 
But he bought Coke when, not because models couldn't work, but because Coke was out of favour temporarily because of a couple of missteps, right? He just simply looked through that and said, there's the opportunity. I think the chance for meaningful dislocation is Buffett's friend. And I think while we've had GFCs and we've had the coronavirus thing, we haven't had the same degree of dislocation that's given him the same circumstance that in 80, whatever it was, 83, gave him a Coke, right? Where people said, Coke's our new Coke, then something else happened at the same time. When we bought Amex, it was that there was this massive scandal that you know threatened to bring down the business. And while everyone was pessimistic, he, he you know the whole grief, fearful went greedy, greedy went fearful thing. That's that's been his benchmark. I think to some degree, there hasn't been enough fear. I mean, the, the you know at, at scale, those dislocations are his friend. He would have bought again, as you said, the Fed stepped in. Had they not, right now Buffett's probably spent a hundred billion dollars right buying stuff that got desperately out of trouble. During the GFC, he backstopped Bank of America. Uh, GEA from memory, one other or two others. Uh, I mean, th- those opportunities are where he's made his money in the past. The absence of those, particularly as you say, at scale, seem to me to be part of the reason why he can't use his usual style to buy those temporarily out of favour. Because we know the market overreacted. It did during the GFC. I-, I would argue it did during the beginning of this pandemic. If that continues for long enough with businesses that are large enough, that's originally been his his shopping style, right? He's buying those businesses when they're being made available to him about discounted prices. Um, I don't know if that's part of the part of the answer as to why he hasn't been able to spend some of that cash either. I'll say that I will disagree with you because I'll say that there's always such opportunities. It depends on whether you you have the alacrity and the uh, and the speed of it. So I'll give an example where he could have acted and it would have been a stellar win for him, but he didn't. Uh, you know, he could have invested in Tesla, a very capital heavy business, exactly the type of business that he likes to invest in. Uh, when you know they you know they were crumbling under the Model Three pressure. That was, would have been the time to say, write a check. Here is $20 billion or $15 billion or whatever. Give me a majority stake or like, you know, under 20% stake in this business right. and give me a board right. seat, right? But he did not. So I think uh, I think it is wrong to, I think it's wrong to say that there's opportunities such as that have not appeared. I think they have appeared. He has just missed them is the reality, right? I mean, you can't, you can't be sitting and expecting that they're going to come knocking at your door, right? Sometimes you just have to go look for it if you've got that kind of cash. But that, that was, that's a perfect example of a business where a Berkshire check uh, would have done both sides a favor, right? At that I, think that's, I think that's reasonable, yes. mate, but I think that's, I think that's also partly well, I, your, your lens, right? Like I think Coke and Amex, when they were bought, weren't Tesla-ish businesses with uncertain futures, right? Coke was always going to be Coke. Buffett saw through that pessimism. Tesla, Tesla whatever, however well Tesla does from here, it has never been Coke yet. It's never been Amex yet, right? In the, in the style of... Oh, it's Buffett, to your point, he could have done it, but in terms of his current... or Sorry, in terms of his existing style, making that investment alongside the style he's looking for, he's not looking for innovative, disruptive businesses that are temporarily out of favour. He's looking for the Cokes and Amexes. Tesla's never going to be, or has never been, sorry, maybe will be at some point, has never been a Coke or an Amex in, in the style of Buffett, right? Not to say it wasn't in trouble, not to say the check couldn't have helped, but... It's a very, very, very different business saying Tesla in 2018, 19 was Coke in 1983. I think that's a very, very different trajectory of those two businesses. In terms of let's make, co- business. Let, let's, let's make it controversial. I'm calling time on Buffett's time being over as a, uh, as a market-beating investor. Um, and I've been calling that for a while. I think, you know, it's, um, uh, yeah, I, I just don't think it's going to happen. Right? And, and I, think, I think the only reason it will happen is... Uh, some event happens that nobody could have predicted, right? But that's market timing or, you know, you know that's, that's not investing really in my view. Like, I mean, there's no steady investing happening. So if you're investing as a dollar cost averaging into, in, a, into some form of investing, then I think Berkshire basically, uh, or at least Berkshire stock portfolio, I think is dumb. That's what I'm going we to shall, call. We shall see. I think, honestly, Matt, I think, I think time will actually beat both of us to resolve that question because Buffett hasn't got that much longer at, at the helm of Berkshire. So I think whether, whether he does or doesn't in the next two or three years, it's probably going to be a quirk of time rather than anything else. If, we, if Buffett was 85 or 80, we probably have that debate or conversation, but he's 90 this year. The chances of he's running Berkshire in five years' time is almost zero. So it's probably, it's probably a non-question, but I, but I take the point. All right. Let's move on to back to Corona just for a second, mate, because let, let's talk about Corona itself, but one of the interesting things that are happening because of Corona. Now, Uber is in the news for two very different reasons today. And again, we're doing this on Thursday. The first is cutting 3,700 jobs, which talks to the fact that we're simply not traveling as much as we were because most of us are at home and you know simply not getting out as much. So that's going to hurt Uber, same as hurting the cabs. And we talked about 1-3 cabs last week, but 
This week we hear news that Kathmandu is teaming up with Uber. And funnily enough, I got a little, uh, a friend of a school friend that I went, so, you know, long, long story, but um, they're actually using a, a black car, you know, kind of you know, the, the limousine rental kind of mobs. Again, they've got no business either. So this particular restaurant is using those, you know, kind of um, hire cars to deliver, their, to deliver their food to customers. Kathmandu has done a deal with Uber to do exactly the same. It's kind of fascinating the way that, this may well disrupt of all things. You know, freight was supposed to be the big winner from coronavirus. We're all shopping online. We're all shopping from home. Freight companies are going to be the big winners. It may well be that this is the catalyst for something like an Uber to actually disrupt the entire freight supply chain. That's an interesting thought. I mean, Uber is still, I mean, in, in terms of freight supply chain, the Uber is still the last mile, right? I mean, yes. the big freight guys are still going to be carrying stuff across, you know, borders and planes and in cargo things and so on and so forth. I think that business seems safe. I think it's very interesting that Kathmandu is actually doing this. Uh, it, you know, it's a great uh, experiment, experiment to do. Um, yeah, I, I think it, you know, it's interesting how uh, difficult environments create, get people to become creative, right? You know, the creative yeah, yeah. Starts, starts shining. So this is an example of, you know, trying to be creative. Well, I can't get people to come in. How can I get people to deliver, you know, stuff right, that people right. might still want? Um, so that, that's, I think it's fascinating. But yeah, I mean, it makes sense. People, you know, there are less, uh, you know, people traveling in taxis or in Ubers, so why not use it some other way? Yeah, I, I've been fascinated for a while. I, it may well be that the oligopoly, the freight oligopoly between UPS and FedEx and maybe Amazon's own stuff, there's, there's not that many. Uh, is it Deutsche Post, I think, owns TNT and IPEC here? Um, there's toll. not that many. Sorry, mate? Toll, there's Toll. Toll is toll, right. Japan. Yeah, Japanese conglomerate or something. That's right. Like, that's isn't right. It? I yeah. So, yeah. so maybe there's not maybe there's not enough competition in the in the kind of as you say the main kind of point to point freight. But that last mile, this is a massive tangent. That last mile has got to be the biggest opportunity for disruption. If you think about, like, let's say I've got 100 people living in my street, and we all order something from from an online delivery mob over the course of a week. Right now, let's let's assume that probably doesn't. You know, not everyone shops online as much as I do. Let's assume that happens. We're going to have 100 different couriers, maybe 80 if we're lucky, coming down the street over that week, right? Because for the most part, the chance that I buy from the same retailer as my mate or the guy down the road and or on the same day and or they use the same delivery company, freight company, there's so much potential disruption here. If you think about an Uber style, whether it's Uber or not, the ability to kind of triangulate the multiple kind of, you know, point-to-point freight, I don't know what we call it, we call it backbone to use the, use the internet term, you know, that, that kind of that kind of backhaul mainline freight that goes from, say, Amazon's warehouse to the local delivery consolidation point in, you know, my suburb or, or my area. And then, you know, rather than having each company's last mile, I don't know how much how much cheaper freight would get if you could say, let's get it picked up by, you know, doc.com freight consolidators at the local one. You, you grab the toll, the IPEC, you grab the TNT, the FedEx, the UPS, the Star Trek all at the same time, all for my street, and you've got one career just going down the street from house to house, effectively like the old school Australia Post mailman, and dropping off all, you know, Australia Post does exactly that. They centralise everything and send it out. It feels like there's something big. If there's not so much, you know, oligopoly kind of pressure, so there's no competition, but if, if competition can happen, someone's going to disrupt this at some point, that last mile, aren't they? That's an interesting thought. I really don't know. I mean, the only thing I was thinking about is that uh, if everybody's going to get into last mile, um, businesses like Australia Post are not going to be happy, right? There's too much competition yeah. for them. <laughs> so I, I don't really have a view on the others, but you know, I just was thinking that you know, Australia Post must be thinking, well, if everybody is here, then it's a problem. Yeah, I think that's probably, that's probably part of it too. I just, it just strikes me that there's, you know, in terms of inefficiencies and your point about, you know, people using their brains, at some point, at some point, that's got to make some degree of sense. And maybe it's, maybe it's not a consolidator, maybe it's just like an Uber where, where there's so many freight delivering options in the local area it'd just be done much cheaper or maybe it's maybe it's the, the application of numbers rather than rather than consolidation but just it feels like there's so much inefficiency and frankly so much waste like from a climate perspective you know those toilet paper who gives a crap mob like i don't i don't know what their what their freight costs and bloody pollution is but i've got to think it costs more than going to the local woolies and grabbing on you grab your, your, your milk and soap and and bread i mean that was the ultimate kind of local consolidation point right we don't have to have deliveries from every food company because woolies are doing it for us and we're picking up ourselves or we're getting it delivered something like that just i don't know maybe it's a pipe dream but it feels like there's an opportunity anyway should we move on yes please let's do it my massive tangent mate let's let's just finish off with Qantas. um 
I just thought it was interesting. I, I, more, I guess I've got partly a point to make, partly a high horse, but also worth a conversation. Um, I am fascinated by the game of chess that Alan Joyce, CEO of Qantas, is playing through the media right now. He was very vocal when Virgin wanted a bailout that if they got some, that he wanted some too. Um, and then, and then now Virgin is in administration. They're trying to get back on their feet. They're looking for buyers, and it just so happens, coincidentally, allegedly, Alan Joyce comes out and says, "Well, there might be nineteen dollars airfares when we get back in the skies." Now, maybe he's trying to build the brand. Maybe he's trying to get some free PR, or just maybe, maybe, allegedly, possibly. I love you, Alan. Don't sue me. There's a bit of a message there for potential buyers of Virgin who are saying, hey, we better be careful how much we think we can make out of Virgin because Qantas is signaling it wants to play pretty hardball on pricing. Is there, is there a, not a subliminal message there at the very least, some of those potential bidders who, with Joyce saying, don't assume there's going to be much profit here, guys. Just if you want to rescue Virgin, be very, very careful. Um, is it not designed a little bit to, if not scare a few people away, at least make them think twice? I know, yeah, it's very interesting that um, Alan Joyce is doing uh, is is doing that. Um, uh, I remember him saying the truth, right? How much profit is there in the airline industry? Not much. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's probably only saying the truth that well, you know. Remember, this is a capital-intensive, really not profit-making business. That you know, Qantas International loses money all the time. But what are you guys thinking about? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. So I remember he's saying part through his part. You know. Uh, I don't know how um, Qantas or, in fact, Australia would go without having two airlines. I think they're going to have two airlines in some shape or form. Uh, somebody's going to definitely think that uh, this is worth uh, worth the fight having. Uh, it's a worthy fight, have uh, you know, worth having in in spite of the fact that there's ample proof that they're not going to make money. <laughs> uh, so, so, so somebody's going to willingly sink their capital, which is going to be good for us as consumers. Um, so I think that's, yeah, I, I mean, the ACCC will be watching <laughs> what what is being said and what is being done. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, if you so, had money, you, right, would, would, you, would you actually buy, like, if you had money, right, would yep. you really buy, uh, like, Virgin? I would not. Like, I mean, you know, it's such a, not a great business to run like airline. It's really tough. It's really hard. I have a lot of respect for, you know, uh, Alan for running a great Qantas, but I mean, you know, it's, it's a tough, tough gig. Mate, I wouldn't do it your money, let alone my money. I, I have to say, look, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit more sanguine than you in terms of cap, capital raising funds. And I know there are other, you know, businesses you wouldn't invest in that someone is. And I, I get why they do. It's the same reason people invest in bonds or cash rather than stocks, right? There's, 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 a, there's a risk profile and there's a return and there's a, you know, diversification. There's all sorts of reasons why people invest in different things. I'm, I'm much more sanguine than you in general. But yes, I wouldn't invest my money, your money, or even our worst enemy's money in, in an airline. It's, it's a very, very, very hard business to make cash in, especially when you've got, I mean, look, in airlines generally, right, if you're a passive shareholder, if you want to take over Virgin and try somehow to bring that business back to life with Qantas in the ascendancy, Joyce happily making these comments, which I may be wrong, maybe they're not, directed at Qantas's uh, Virgin's bidders. Uh, I'll be very surprised if they're not, but I have to give that benefit of the doubt to Alan Joyce. Um, there has got to be something there to it, right? There's something going on that he's saying, yeah, I, man, what do you want to buy an airline for? Man? It's the old, the old story. How do you, you know, how do you make a million dollars when you, you start with a billion and buy an airline? It, yeah. I mean, there's something to that, right? Yeah, something to that. Absolutely. I think that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, probably he's just saying the truth. But uh, I, I mean, you know, think about it, right? Well, Australia has a relatively small population. We do fly a lot. Uh, you know, we have very efficient airports and, you know, systems and so on to, you know, push people through. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's like a country of 25 million, right? It's it's hard, actually. <laughs> uh, and how much flying can people do? And how much are you going to really make off it? And, you know, right. God knows right. what, the, what the revised rules of flying are going to look like, right? I mean, will they be able to fill up the plane like they did before? I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe negative oil regime, you can uh, get away with the stuff, but you know, some days oil is not going to be negative, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. Even even though we're negative, I, I I still you know people people talk about airlines, they talk about the oil prices being a, a determinant of profit. That's only true to the extent that pricing isn't efficient at the seat level. Because if oil's cheap, then everyone sells cheap seats. If all these yeah, right. expensive seats, it's a it's a cost input, yes, but it's not like the pricing is fixed. The pricing is super competitive, super dynamic. You're only going to look at, a, you know, the, the price of a different, the same plane flying between Sydney and Melbourne in a normal day. You pay 500 bucks in the morning or 150 bucks if you fly at lunchtime. 
there's no cost difference. That's pure competition right there. They're trying to keep people in the air. They're trying to keep the planes, you know, get them where they want to get the, the people home. You know, there's so much competition there. I just, I, I know people talk about oil price. I, just, I know you were just saying this a, a bit of a, a, a part, you know, throwaway comment, but it's really worthwhile if you're thinking about buying an airline or buying shares in an airline, not you personally, but our listeners, um, just remember that, you know, this, this pricing is really, really efficient. Yeah, if oil price falls, guess what? Someone says, I can, I get more bums on seats. I can drop my prices because I can afford to, and I want to, I want to fill the planes. So someone else says, well, if they're doing it, I guess we're going to do it. So everyone drops their prices. Maybe a few more people will fly because flying is just so much cheaper. And that's certainly been the experience over the last 40 years as, as costs come down, you know, passenger miles go up. But there's always, always excess capacity. It's a terrible business to own. That's right. And there's only so many, you know, there's only so many, as, as we said, right? I mean, there's only so many people that can fly, right? You can only right. create so much delta there. <laughs> so, well, Let's finish off with one mailbag question because I'd be disappointed if we didn't have at least one during our, during our regular podcast. This won't surprise anybody. We're going to have a mailbag podcast on Sunday. So make sure you listen in. As I've said before, and I, I don't want um, to give anyone grief, particularly you, Doc, but if you are using the Apple Podcasts app, just be, make sure the podcast episode gets downloaded if it gets to Sunday night or Sunday afternoon and you haven't got it yet, just check online, see if it's there. If it's not, or if it is there, you might want to go and grab that because for some reason we don't yet know exactly why. Some of our listeners have had trouble getting the mailbag episode. So check on Sunday. Make sure you don't miss out because it's good stuff. Well, it's going to be. I'm sure. haven't recorded it yet, mate, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be good stuff. All right. One mailbag question from Lynette who sent an S question to me on Facebook. G'day, Scott and Doc. I'm new to investing. I've read a recent newsletter from the Motley Fool Share Advisor, that's the service I run, that gave guidelines on the number of stocks to buy, which is about 25 to ensure diversification. She says, would this be for ETFs and the recommended companies? In other words, ETFs themselves are diversified investments. How do you think about, mate, ETFs when it comes to diversification in your portfolio or, or the portfolio of our listeners? How do you, I mean, it's already diversified, but how do you factor that in to how many stocks to own when it comes to diversification? Well, this is, uh, it's your service, Captain. You can answer this question. Emma, <laughs> <laughs> will like it. I like it. Uh, All right, Emma. Here's my, oh, sorry, Lynette. Sorry, here's my view. Um, you're dead right that ETFs give you diversification. As long as they, as long as that ETF exposure kind of roughly approximates, you know, a large enough proportion of your portfolio. So, for example, if you have, if you say, well, ETFs are diversified, therefore I only need ETFs plus one other company, that's kind of true, except that what it really means is you've still got the rest of your portfolio, the other company representing 50% stake in your portfolio, right? So at some level, it's better than having two companies. You'd rather have one company, one ETF. But if half your portfolio is still in a single company, that's still massive amounts of portfolio concentration. So yeah, absolutely. An ETF is better than an individual business for the benefits of diversification alone. Now you can potentially beat the market with individual stocks. So we, we wouldn't say just ETFs necessarily, unless that was how you wanted to invest. But just think about kind of what's left. So if you wanted to have an ETF, for example, and it was half your portfolio, then you want to bring that diversification number down to another 12 companies to kind of round out the rest of it, right? So that's how I'd think about it. Think about 25 slots in your portfolio and ETFs, to whatever degree, you know, that, that portion makes up your portfolio. If it's one slot out of 25, no matter how diversified they are, it's still only going to be 4% of your portfolio, which means the other 95% isn't necessarily diversified. So proportionally, ETFs can be great. The more ETFs you hold or the larger its share of your portfolio, the fewer other companies you hold. So if you owned 12 companies and the ETF was the other half, then fine. If you owned, if a third of your portfolio was ETFs, then I'd say make the other two-thirds um, individual companies so and make sure they're large enough as individual pieces so the rest of the portfolio isn't undiversified. So rather think about the ETFs and it, their share of the portfolio, think about the rest and make sure the rest aren't too big in individual slots by comparison. Does that make sense, Doc? It does make sense. Which is why Do I give it to you. You should answer. No, I have nothing to add. Perfect answer. Very, very <laughs> Thanks, good. Thanks, Lynette, for the question. Very good. Thanks for that. Now, that does wrap us up, mate. We will be back on Sunday. We, we almost always are, and we will. Mate, tell you what, our listeners are spoiled for choice this week. Warren Hogan, uh, Motley Fool Money, Mailbag Episode Money Hacks. Tell you what, I'm gonna, this week we're going to charge double for this podcast. What do you reckon? I think we should make it triple. triple okay, triple. There you go. You, listeners, you've got to pay triple the price this week. Unfortunately, my maths isn't great, but three times zero is still zero, Doc? Still zero. That's still zero. 
Disappointing. All right, mate, that is it. But before we go, don't forget, you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please do give us a rating on iTunes. Tell your friends, leave us a review. The world is a little bit more foolish, especially right now. Bit of fun, a bit of frivolity, a bit of foolish investment advice. Can't be a bad combination, surely. And of course, speaking of which, if you want that straight to your inbox and a special offer to join Dividend Investor, Go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Full Money. We'll be back on Sunday with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691. Take a moment to reset and unwind with Worldgate Spa's balancing 50-minute full-body massage. Indulge in pure relaxation as skilled therapists restore harmony to your mind and body. Plus, enjoy complimentary aromatherapy to heighten your senses and deepen your experience. Treat yourself to a moment of serenity and renewal. Book your appointment today at Worldgate Spa.